In our last episode, we looked into how universities and colleges help students jump through the various and often challenging hoops of the U.S. immigration system. But students aren't the only constituency that schools have to worry about. Like any employer, universities need to make sure their employees, including the faculty, remain compliant with the increasingly challenging U.S. immigration system. Today, we're going to speak to Laura Taylor. She's the Senior Associate Director for Faculty and Scholar Services at Cornell University's Office of Global Learning. And she deals with these faculty immigration issues on a daily basis. We're going to talk to her about how she handles it and how the faculty approach it. Also, if you do have a chance, please do leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast. It really does help. This is the Everyday Immigration Podcast. I'm David Wilkes. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Everyday Immigration Podcast. I am truly honored today to have Laura Taylor from Cornell University. Laura, why don't you say hello? Hello, everybody. So, Laura, you have a storied past at Cornell. You've been there for, I'm not going to say how long. (laughs) Coming up on my 25-year anniversary. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So you are an institution at Cornell, uh, and so it really is an honor to have you here. We're going to talk today about uh, faculty immigration and, and all of the intricacies and yeah. eccentricities, you could say, about that. But first, I have to ask you my, my question that I ask everybody, mm-hmm. uh, which is about immigration. This is the Everyday Immigration Podcast because immigration, you know, regardless of whether you are someone that has yourself gone through the immigration system, it impacts everybody. So sure. how has it impacted you? Well, it um, sort of accidentally became my career. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, growing up, I had grandparents whose parents were from Germany. Oh, okay. Uh, but I never thought that much about immigration other than, um, you know, experiencing the need to get visas and travel myself to other countries mm-hmm. and so aware of borders and immigration laws and rules in other countries and never really thought that much about it here until I fell into the position at Cornell. And how did you fall into the position? Um, I started as a, um, a PhD dropout. I guess I hadn't entirely decided whether to drop out of a PhD program, but I was uh, at the University of Colorado Boulder working on a PhD in physical anthropology. Really? And had just come back from doing field work in Indonesia and uh, was trying to decide whether I was going to continue Mm. in the PhD or um, find a job. Mm -hmm. And as a temporary measure, while thinking that through, I found a job in the Cornell Cornell University's engineering admissions office. Okay. And uh, at first I was stuffing envelopes for an ad campaign. Oh, wow. But within a few months, um, I was reviewing uh, ap- applications for the huh. engineering college. And was the ad campaign successful? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they stuff envelopes anymore for, <laughs> for campaigns. But um, um, that's how I got started at Cornell. And um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to stay in admissions. It wasn't, didn't feel like exactly the right fit for me, but I wasn't sure what it is I wanted to do. Um, And I saw a job open in the International Students and Scholars Office, and I just thought rather broadly, well, it's working with people from other countries, and I've lived abroad and enjoyed working with people from other countries. 
So I threw my hat in that ring and was uh, fortunate to, to get a position there 25 years ago. So, wow. Yeah. You know, it's funny, as I talk to people, there's not many people that set out to work in immigration. It's right. a lot of just, I mean, because I think there's there's not a lot of understanding about what it even is to begin with. So how do you choose such a thing? Uh, but particularly when you're involved in, in more business immigration than, say, family-based or, or the rest, you know, it's one of those things where you sort of stumble upon it, I think, in a way. That's exactly what happened. Right. I, I, um, I got into the International Students and Scholars Office, as it was called at that time, and um, realized that I really enjoyed regulations, hmm. that it wasn't that different from studying non-human primate bones. And, you know, I thought, well, OK, you have laws and then you have regulations and you have uh, practice. Mm -hmm. And to me, there were parallels in studying, um, you know, bones and muscles and skin, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of memorization, a lot of um, sort of analysis. And, and so it wasn't that. And sometimes excavation too, I'm sure. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah. Not that there were parallels. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's fantastic. And so how's your, how's your role evolved there? I started out as a basic immigration advisor, um, advising F1 students, um, regulations and practice, um, moved from there to working primarily with scholars, mm. with faculty and staff at Cornell. So I've been doing both advising for students and scholars for all of those, all the years I've been at Cornell, but for the past 18, I've been primarily uh, working with our um, employment-based immigration um, practice. And, and what's the difference there when you're, you're working with the student as opposed to working with the faculty member? Well, one difference, it's rather subtle, is um, in, all, in all respects, I'm working for Cornell University. Mm -hmm. But when we work with um, international faculty and staff, um, I'm serving as the employer's representative mm -hmm. rather than representing the faculty member, him or herself. So that's a rather subtle difference um, and a difference between what an immigration attorney would do. An immigration attorney would be uh, both representing the, uh, the client right. and the employer. Uh, in my case, I'm not an immigration attorney, so I'm only permitted to represent the employer. Right. So what are, what are some common issues that you see when you're, you're dealing with faculty? Um, well, Maybe not with the faculty themselves, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to cast dispersions on, your, on, on the faculty members. But, but, you know, as far as, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with that, what are, what are some of the stresses? What are some of the um, issues that, that maybe they're facing or, or, or your office faces sometimes? Or, or what's that like? What's that dynamic? So in terms of um, the stresses that people face, some of them are consistent over time and some have changed. Mm. So what's been consistent has been um, that many of our faculty and researchers come to the university with family members. And very often those family members um, would like to work, mm -hmm. need or would like to work, which has often meant that we've needed to fast track or expedite a green card petition, a permanent residency petition for them. Um, we also have always had faculty who come in in fields where getting 
federal grants is important. And those individuals have also always wanted to move quickly from their temporary worker H-1B uh, visas to uh, a status to uh, permanent residency. What's changed now is that um, I'm seeing far more people coming in sooner than they would have in the past hmm. to talk about planning for the future with concerns about their long-term ability to remain in the United States and who are, are um, clearly being impacted by the anti-immigrant rhetoric that's sure. going on in our sure. federal government. There, there is a certain aspect where people are depending on you because they don't understand this, you know, the regulations, like you're saying, can be quite complex. And right. while that can be stimulating, it can also be very daunting to this foreign national that doesn't know all the intricacies of 8 CFR or 2, 4, you know, whatever it is. Absolutely. Um, and so that puts a lot of pressure on on you as the advisor or, or, or me as the attorney uh, because they have to trust you. Right. And that's hard for anybody to do, I think. I think that's exactly right. I find myself doing a lot more counseling, calming, just trying to have conversations with people about the fact that we're still getting nearly 100% approvals for our cases. Oh, that's we're fantastic. Still, despite there being roadblocks coming up, we're still quite successful. But, it, but it's difficult because, as you say, people, you know, they need to trust that that's true. Yeah, and the consequences for them can Are be so significant, great. Yeah. right. Yeah. We'll be right back with more from Laura Taylor. So if you listen to these episodes until the very end, you'll hear me give the same credit speech where I say that this podcast is not legal advice, and it shouldn't be. We're not sitting down looking over your documents, giving particularized advice about what you need to do in order to navigate or to have your employee navigate the immigration system. But if that's something that you're interested in, the good folks at Miller Mayer can help you with that. They're offering a 10% discount on their standard immigration consultation rate. All you need to do is email podcast at M-I-L-L-E-R-M-A-Y-E-R.com and Miller Mayer will set you up with one of their great immigration attorneys. So when you're when you're pursuing these green cards, is this mostly through doing the outstanding researcher and professor method or are you doing labor certifications or? Both. Both. Yeah, both labor certifications for those who are teaching mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, EB1 cases for those who are doing research. And that's a nice benefit on, on both counts, really. I mean, the the uh, outstanding researcher, which is EB1B, uh, which uh, if, if you're a regular listener, we've we talked about with uh, in a previous episode with Crystal Osmond, so you can go back and talk in detail. But essentially, uh, it's where you have to show with the EB1B, it's where you show that you're an outstanding researcher or professor. You meet two criteria among a a plethora of other criteria that could be things like that you have published in international journals, that you have judged the work of others, that you've impacted the field, that uh, you've won awards, things along those lines. Uh, But it's a lower standard than the EB1A, which sounds very similar. Correct. But it is adjudicated much more harshly. If you look at the adjudication statistics, EB1B, the approvals are very, very high. EB1A, which is extraordinary ability um, and a very similar evaluative process, it it gets judged much more harshly. So so the fact that you are a research institution and people can can use the EB1B is a huge benefit to professors. Significant benefit, that's true. 
And likewise with labor certification, you have what's called special handling. So again, just as a refresher, in case you don't want to go back and listen to more episodes, though I would love if you would, uh, but in case you don't want to go back, uh, that's where you do a test of the labor market under normal circumstances. It would be a prospective test, which would mean that you would do the, the test of the labor market after you've employed the person, which is to say that you would go and do recruitment, which would, for, for most employers, is you put out some newspaper ads, you put out, uh, you get to choose three other types, which could be, you know, online ads or or uh, radio ads, which are always kind of funny to listen to if you've ever done a radio ad. <laughs> but for a university where you're teaching, you get this special benefit called special handling, which uh, you get to rely on old recruitment because presumably the faculty search committee has done an extensive job vetting these employees. And because you're going to be teaching our kids, we get to say you get to hire the best person as opposed to you get to hire, you have to hire the any qualified U.S. worker over any foreign national. Right. It's a great program. Right. So any sense. any new teaching faculty, we encourage to come in and, and talk about labor certification right away. Well, because you have that ad and, as, you know, you get the recruitment and the, the recruitment goes stale. I think it's after, I want to say 18 months. 18 months. Right. So 18 months from the offer. Right. Right. Which could be, you know, a while back. Right. Particularly, uh, it, it comes up as an issue when um, sometimes we have incoming faculty who defer their start dates mm. and we don't hear from them until we're too close to the window closing on that 18 months. Well, and I personally love the labor certification, as, as tedious as it is as the practitioner to do it. It's very strenuous as far as you can't make any typos or things like right. that. But it's so bureaucratic if you meet, if you check all the boxes, you know, it's not you're leaving it up to the government. And, you know, a Cornell EB1B is probably going to be approved because you you are such a good institution and you hire the best of the best. Uh, but there's still that discretion involved of are you out, actually outstanding, whereas with the labor certification, you either went through the process or you didn't go through the process. Right. Yeah, that's true. It's a pretty straightforward process. So we do we do try to use it wherever we can. It just goes to show that the temperament towards universities, and I think it is that, that idea that they're really benefiting the up-and-coming generation mm-hmm. of U.S. citizens. It, it, it's nice that there are programs that incentivize the best of the best to, to stick with it. Because I think that's the biggest issue that the immigrants face is that it's so daunting to get through. I mean, imagine Agreed. an Indian national who is not qualified for EB1, has to go through EB2 or EB3, is facing at least a 20-year wait at, under some estimates. Some estimates have it, you know, you know, over a century. Um, I hope that those estimates are off. I do too. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So, yeah. but just that, that, that looking at that, I mean, that you, you have to be an incredibly resilient person mm-hmm. to have to put up with that to be quite honest. And so I, I love the fact that, that you can find these sort of glimmers of hope in the law where they're, they're incentivizing the people that you are working with to stick with it because it is a, it is a, smoother, a smoother path. Right. It's not easy. No, 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 but no. But it is easier. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, always, that's always a yeah. great, good caveat to, mm-hmm. to throw in there. And I think people underestimate, you know, I'm sure you've had this too. Oftentimes when it, when it comes up is that there will be um, two students that come in and one is a U.S. citizen mm-hmm. and one is a foreign national and they've started a company. And the foreign national is prepared for all the difficulty that we're about to talk about in the consultation. But the U.S. citizen is blown away. They thought, <laughs> they thought, oh, I could just start my little company. You know, right. we're getting off the ground. It's going to be so easy. Uh, but Unfortunately, your partner here 
you know, has already experienced the bureaucracy of yes. the United States government. Yes. Right. Yes. So thankfully, there's people like you out there holding the hand of, of some of the best and brightest that are I really to come enjoy here. the work. I like it. And that's why I'm still doing it. It's our favorite case. I think one of the things I enjoy most about my work is that because I work for such a large and diverse institution, the green card cases that I get to process are from every area of the university, every field. And I get to learn mm. what everybody's doing yeah. everywhere. So what's happening, you know, with research in space science and with what's happening in some of the biological sciences, or we've done petitions for archaeologists, we've done petitions for artists. So to kind of see, get a window on every field in the world is really interesting. Well, it's a wonderful career for somebody that is naturally curious, I think, because not only do you get you, you get to work with people from all over the world and experience that culture, but it's exactly what you're saying. Uh, you get to figure out what it is that, because you have, if you can't explain it, the government's not going to understand, right, right? Right. So, you know, you're going to spend a few hours on Wikipedia studying, you know, whatever it is, mitral valve regurgitation, for right. example, or whatever. <laughs> you know, you, you get these things that, that stick in your mind. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's, it can be hugely beneficial, I think, just to the individual that gets to help out with this for that, that very mm -hmm. reason. I think it makes you a more complete human being in a way. So what would you tell somebody if you, if you could go and talk to these folks before they set out on their prestigious careers that will eventually land them in Ithaca, New York, at your office, talking about a green card, what would you tell them when they're, you know, 15, 16, 17, thinking about their, or maybe in college, thinking about their career plans? and think, mm, maybe I want to go to the U.S., maybe I want to work in academia? Plan ahead. Plan ahead. Do research. Um, have conversations early. Mm. Uh, don't wait to the last minute to try to work through the, the system that we have. And that's that's it, really. Yeah. Just just try to plan ahead and, and, and understand as much as you can about our system. And your office helps quite a bit with that for, for undergrads that come in, right? So they, well, not just undergrads, but everybody that comes in. You have regular Regular talks. open yeah. hours, right, for advising. We have um, every semester and during the regular week, we have work talks mm. to help international students understand what will be required if they want to remain in the United States working either, either short term or longer term. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm I'm, I'm very impressed um, by by Cornell in general and, and with, with other universities as well. But the last episode that we just put up, um, which will have been a few episodes back once this this is recorded, but or rather once this is published, was with Annie Mara over at the Johnson School, mm -hmm. and they just did this huge study to figure out what's happening to their alumni after they after they graduate and. And just the thought that, you know, after the last tuition bill has been paid, right? So once the students graduated, Cornell's gotten the, the, the money. But it's not the sort of close ranks, well, thank you, goodbye, here's your diploma and have a nice day. There's this continuation, there's this, and, and it's this culture that I find when I'm, when I'm interacting with people from Cornell that it, it's not just a, you know, thank you for the money, we're going to go pursue our research and we'll give you a good education. It's, you know, we're invested in you. We, we you know, we want to see you succeed. I think that's true. Cornell's a tremendous institution. 
I'm really proud to be employed there. That's fantastic. Laura, thank you so much. This has been Laura Taylor from uh, Cornell University. Thank you so much for being on. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. The Everyday Immigration Podcast is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment. It's hosted by me, David Wilkes. Special thanks to Miller Mayer for letting us record in its offices and making its staff available to us. As I am an attorney, portions of this production contain attorney advertising and prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. In addition, this podcast is not intended to be legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship between its hosts, its guests, or its listeners. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use and give us a review. You can also connect through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or on the web at frostedlens.com. We'll be back with another episode soon, and we'll see you then.